Hello, this is Nick Clegg, and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. This is Paddy Ashdown, and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Welcome back. Damn. Damn, it's good to see you. You lovely-faced human being, you. How has your week been? I mean, I say week. How was your weekend? Did did you get the sun on your face? Did you get rain in your slippers? Uh, I I don't I don't really know what happened on my weekend yet because I'm recording before my weekend, so I actually have a weekend and a life whilst uh, whilst I'm not podcasting, which believe it or not does actually take up an awful lot of time in a great fantastic way. So yeah, it, uh, Brexit, Brexit, blah blah. I think we've covered Brexit quite enough for the time being on this show uh, and, and and so consequently I've got the Amnesty interview that I did with Steve Simmons there from Am- Amnesty UK uh, and, and it's it's on this very podcast you'll, you'll find it it's behind the um, it's behind the curtain uh, down that secret passageway that I've just had uh, redone I've, I've had it painted uh, various deg- de- degrees of of, um, of grey and magnolia uh, all neutral colours because uh, we all like neutral colours don't we and uh, yeah yeah I mean it's a good chat. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a good chat. What a shit word to use. It's a good chat, or I might as well just say, yeah, magnolia. So the subject matter is intense. Obviously, we talk about um, the refugee crisis. We talk about Donald Trump. Um, we talk about um, the uh, the civil war in Syria that has uh, obviously now. I don't know, ended and whatever the hell that means anyway it I, it's not over blah 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 but the awful atrocities that have been um exposed now and the, the 14,000 people that were murdered in, in uh, prisons in uh, in in Syria under Assad uh, and and we talk about that we talk about um uh, human rights as a whole around around the globe and dif- and the different uh, fights that Amnesty are fighting, uh, the different topics that they're bringing to the the public and trying to keep that narrative uh, relative and 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 you know something we can all compute, trying to make it human. So my reason for this interview is that fact is I want to try and make this more human um i'm someone that that comes from a background as you all know i'm a freaking gardener like i i have i have no degree i have about three gcses no i have three gcses and i scraped those uh went to college and and dropped out i have the reason i'm saying this is because i kind of went out of my way to find um to find problems in a, at an early age um, in Bur- uh, the Burmese um, political crisis uh, over there with um, Aung San Suu Kyi and I was very young when I got into that and and it really motivated me um, and I you know I, I could have kept my head down and, and sort of just drunk myself into oblivion or what have you and, and let um, status quo and Led Zeppelin rule my life but no um, and so it, it meant a lot to me to sit down and chat with a representative from Amnesty International because it felt like a little bit of full circle um, and, and it was important for me to, to it's important for me to bring this to you and I hope you enjoy it uh, I hope you get something from it and and if you can it's it's a f- pretty long interview it's a pretty long interview it's about 35 40 minutes if it takes you a while to get through it that's okay I'm not going to hold it against you if it takes you a fortnight to get through it I don't care hell 10 10 minutes a day you know that's no time right or Oh, do it all in one go, like I do with my podcast. When I'm listening to other podcasts, I, I'm I'm out there gardening and and I do it all in one go, and I feel bloated mentally and physically. I have problems. I'd rather not talk about it, but I have. I mean, hell, we talked about lavatory paper on the last podcast with Anna Subri, so that might be a a, a repetitive, a, a reoccurring theme. Toilet paper. Hmm. What's your favourite coloured toilet paper? Please email the show. Don't. 
Um, yeah, so anyway, enjoy the, enjoy this interview. Like I said, it's heavy going material, but it's um, it's very, very important. Okay, right, I'm here with uh, Steve Simmons uh, from Amnesty UK. And uh, Steve, what what brought you into Amnesty back in the back in the day? Well, I, I'm relatively new to, to working here, although I've worked with Amnesty for many years. Um, I joined in 2014. Um, I have a long history working, particularly with asylum seekers in the UK, um, representing them with their appeals for many years, and then advising and supporting lawyers and others working with asylum seekers and indeed on migrant rights generally. Um, I, I joined Amnesty in 2014 as really uh, a move to expand the opportunity, um, as I see it, to hopefully influence refugee and migrant rights in the UK in a more progressive way. Certainly we've had a fairly toxic, I think you can say, immigration debate for, in fact, many, many years in this country, albeit it certainly got significantly worse of late. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to be at a place such as this, hopefully, where over time we can start to turn that around. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I know obviously everything's Trump Trump crazy at the moment um, and how he seems to have turned his a percentage of his country against the idea of asylum seekers and refugees. I read your blog the other day. It was really, really, really interesting. Um, and it touched on the um, Action for Childhood Arrivals programme and how the, uh, Donald Trump has deferred it. Can you give us an idea of why that would be bad and how it came about in the first place? Well, it's not clear what he's doing with that programme yet. He's threatened, um, essentially, to scrap it. Um, the programme was introduced by President Obama through what's known as an executive order, something a power that this new president has made quite a lot of in his first few days to do some pretty disastrous things for refugee and migrant rights. And so one of the fears is that he might scrap um, essentially the order that President Obama made. Um, that program, um, it's not particularly focused on refugees per se, but what it does is it assists people who arrived in the United States as children um, but arrived without permission to be there, uh, but who've lived there for many, many years, in, in some instances had children themselves in, in the States, um, but whose situation has never been regularised and who potentially are at risk of deportation. And so the programme was a way for them um, to move their status to becoming more formal, allow them to work, to study with much greater ease, um, to secure their situation at least temporarily, while it was hoped that Congress would sort out passing laws to allow some of those long-standing residents in the United States, as I say, with families there, many of them now, yeah. to have a route to actually being permitted to stay mm. long-term. So sort of compassionate, really? Well, in one sense compassionate, in one sense rec recognising of the clear rights that, that, that people have established in terms of their family and social life in the country yeah. and let's not forget that the program is particularly directed at people who arrived during childhood so not really with choices that they made about their lives um, but also recognizing quite frankly that having or attempting deportation programs to simply round up and return huge numbers of people is an extremely expensive and socially damaging concept one that's likely doomed to failure. And so realistically, at least recognising that many people who have arrived and been in a country for many, many years, that actually the better thing for all mm. concerned is to find ways in which they can more fully integrate into a society of which they're already, frankly, part of. So how's, how's Amnesty involved in the past few weeks in the unravelling of uh, Donald Trump's campaign rhetoric and how it's actually it's happening you know he's well at least it's being held back by the by the judges at the moment but how's amnesty involving itself in that in that process well our american section has been very strong in responding to the succession of executive orders that he passed within just days of of coming to office 
And we have particularly focused on, and they're not exclusively, but very strongly focused on what's widely referred to as the Muslim ban. So the order um, by which he did a number of things, actually. He suspended um, the United States resettlement program for refugees. Um, he put a, a closure on its Syrian resettlement program. And he barred the entry, temporarily at least, um, of citizens or people coming from seven Muslim-majority countries, all of which, not just affecting refugees, but certainly all of which penalising refugees, um, many of whom, and there are many instances of this, um, had been waiting to pass through the American resettlement program for many, many years, in fact. I mean, oftentimes that that program itself takes um, several years to come to fruition for someone, um, some of whom had their visas already. So they'd been sitting in, for insta instance, refugee camps elsewhere in the world where they may have been living mm. for many years, um, had received through that program, gone through a, a, an elaborate process to be told that, yes, you've been vetted, you've been accepted as in particular need, you can come to the States, and then overnight suddenly told, no, you're not, you're not coming. And the program that you were to benefit from has been suspended for um, three months. Because for me, when you're describing that that process of years and years and years, as a human being, what, as a human species, what does that do to the mind of someone that's in limbo like that, that's had otherwise a normal life and then a civil war has come along and completely destroyed them, or they've been waiting in a um, almost like a holding pattern what what's the common sort of psychological uh, problems that people would would suffer from that well it's excruciatingly painful and it's also generates a very strong feeling of injustice and it's not just people whom ha have been forced to flee to a camp and then find themselves waiting and hoping that they may be one of the lucky few um, who get to be resettled actually it also includes increasingly these days um, people born in exile. So some of the world's refugee camps increasingly are places where people are born. Indeed, we are getting to the stage where increasing numbers of people are born to people born in those camps. So you have people who are living their lives, their whole lives, from, the, you know, from birth mm. in a refugee camp, say, in Kenya. Um, one in particular, very much in the news at the moment, Dadaab, which hosts anything up to about 300,000 refugees in one camp. People aren't allowed out of there. There's very limited um, opportunity for them to, as children, to go to school, for adults to find any meaningful employment. For many people, this is just wasting away their lives in a facility that is closed, mm. dependent upon the handouts of the international community, which quite frankly, year on year, are way below the projections of what's needed to properly even feed um, the numbers of people who find themselves in those circumstances. And so when, if you're lucky enough, your chip comes through to say, no, actually, this is finally an opportunity for you to escape this limbo that you and your family perhaps have been living for years or decades, and relocate to a place where you can start to rebuild a life and perhaps hope for a life for your children, even if much of your life has already gone. To have that whisked away from you at the last moment is an incredibly painful, soul-destroying experience. Wow, you've, you've painted an extraordinarily um, accurate picture, but quite uh, obviously a deeply upsetting one. Um, I mean, for me, the, um, the knock-on effect, the immediate thing for me is, is what is going to come come next it's all very well and good saying we're going to we're going to ban muslims and um keep them out of our our country um and then the mirror effect obviously with with brexit which there was a there was a racist element to brexit a xenophobic reaction to whatever the european union supposedly represents in people's minds and i i'm worried that the knock on effect is going to be more terrorism around the world is is that a lot is that a logical is that too far-fetched is that sensationalist or is that realistic that people are going to become upset more so an extremist in in their approach to the to the western world as it were um 
I, I don't think it's a sensationalist response to this, but um, I would say that in some ways it's a response that perhaps misses what are probably even more shocking outcomes from, from what's going on at the moment. So the reality of the world in which we live in is that terrorism is a risk in many societies around the world. As it happens, a smaller risk in relatively safe, resourced countries like ours compared to places elsewhere in the world where terror attacks are more frequent and oftentimes much, much more deadly. Mm. But no doubt, a, a real risk here. And it's no doubt that those who um, seduce often young, disaffected, isolated individuals into carrying out these attacks for them do make exceeding mileage from the way in which countries like ours either do or appear to reject the suffering and situation of other peoples elsewhere. And certainly if you're looking at Muslim-related um, or Islam-related terrorism, actions like this of Donald Trump in relation to Muslims and Muslim refugees clearly cannot help with that situation. But probably a bigger impact is not on the terror front at all. The situation of the world today is that forced migration because of conflict and persecution is on a dramatic rise and has been since the end of 2013. We've gone from a situation in the world where if one for the moment leaves aside 5 million Palestinian refugees, often not much talked about, um, there were somewhere around 10.5 million refugees in the world at the end of 2013. Um, barely three years later, we can add 5 million people to that number. And Syria is a major part of that, but by no means all of it. You've got one of the world's newest countries, South Sudan, a relatively small country in terms of population numbers, mm -hmm. already has more than one and a half million of its citizens forced to flee a conflict that hardly gets discussed. You've got countries like Somalia, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. long-standing huge refugee populations. And we have a world in which safe space for refugees is in large part shrinking at a rapid rate. And it's shrinking because countries that have more resources have long ignored the fact that much poorer and less stable countries have been hosting by far the greater population of the world's forcibly displaced for many years and have now started accelerating their efforts to build their walls mm -hmm. and ramp up their returns. And the impact therefore elsewhere is that you see countries like Pakistan, Iran, and more recently, certainly threatening Kenya, seeking to return much, much larger populations of refugees to countries which are still in the middle of conflict and instability, like Afghanistan and Somalia, mm. risking an extension of the instability in those countries, a closure of safe place for people who are forced to flee, mm -hmm. and therefore ever more pressure for people to try ever more dangerous journeys in the desperate hope that they can find somewhere safe. Yeah, I mean, that's, I suppose, you've, you've conjured up images there of, of um, the Mediterranean. Um, one of my questions was, we, we I mean, in, in, certainly in my mind, it feels that we, um, we went through various stages of the Syrian, Syrian uh, civil war. And I referenced Syria, I, I'm well aware of, like, you know, um, the other traumas that the world's facing. Um, but do you think there's a site a slight sort of almost stage of apathy that we're going through here as a world. Well, we saw a, bu a boy brought from that building and put in the back of that ambulance and that, that picture taken, which destroyed, you know, absolutely, you know, horrendous. And, and obviously before that, the boy that was washed up on the beach. Do you feel like we're getting to a point now that what's, what's next? Is it apathy? I mean, is the world sort of not necessarily turning its back, but are we getting used to that? Um, I, I think we've got a mix of things going on. I mean, I certainly wouldn't say we have a, a world full of apathy. You only need to look at the hundreds of thousands of activists, amnesty members and supporters among them who have responded 
um, to a refugee situation as it's been experienced in Europe. You know, to the extent of some of them giving up relationships, homes and careers to head off often to the shores of the Mediterranean or to much closer places to provide an immediate response to people in desperate need. And some of them have done that, not just for a sort of a weekend or a week, but some of them have literally done that for months and now getting into periods of years. So there clearly is um, a still significant groundswell of people who are willing to respond in the most extraordinary ways. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone is in a position to do that, and no one's expecting that everyone should do that. But what is needed is particularly governments willing to harness that enthusiasm and celebrate it, rather than be cowed and give greater voice to an alternative reaction from people, which is no doubt there and can't be ignored. Mm -hmm. Um, which is of those who have responded in much more negative, negative ways, sometimes goaded by people seeking to make political capital out of their worries, sometimes goaded, I'm sorry to say, by extraordinary and damaging headlines and stories in some of our national media, and sometimes just goaded by their own prejudices, quite frankly. Um, and that needs to be, of course, addressed, because the net result is... I don't think apathy is something um, at, a, at a political level significantly worse. It's a belief that the response, the correct response to this, is to shut down the capacity for people to move to somewhere safe. Now, that is disastrous. And what it is fueling, I'm sorry to say, and has done for some time, is not only extremely dangerous journeys that some people are forced to take, but it's also fueling an incredible boom in the smuggling business of these very people. So we are, in some sense, um, you could say, um, privatising the movement of people who have to move, mm. some of whom come to our shores, and privatising it to the most disreputable and dangerous people who could be in that business. Mm. People who, of course, don't just smuggle people will smuggle anything for profit, but are certainly making a great deal of business out of this one. Yeah, no, that, that that's I mean, there are so there are so many different strands to what we're going through at the moment, I suppose, in, in, in what you've just described. People smuggling being beyond. I mean, to, to just go into the mind of someone that's doing that is I, I can't even get it. I can't even get my head into that. You know, it's it's terrifying. But um, in terms of of amnesty and their proactiveness, do we have? Are there any? Because we've seen the the, the, the women's march in uh, the UK and and in Washington and around the world. And I know you you guys have had a, a big big hand in that. Obviously, um, are there any any marches? Planned any demonstrations planned for 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 this in Muslim ban at the moment? Well, there are more activities um, that will be happening both in the states and indeed elsewhere. Um, we're also um, supporting in this country something that um, was called for even before Trump took office, and we saw these executive orders. Um, a response to the situation here. And let's not forget that our response to refugees and migrants in this country has become increasingly hostile. Oh, my God, yeah. I, um, really, I need to talk to you about the media. That's another question. But, um, you know. <laughs> so, you know, there, there is a call to action on the 20th of February, um, which has uh, been called under the, under the name and hashtag of One Day Without Us. Amnesty is supporting um, that activity. Um, one, one Day Without Us? Yeah, it's, 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 it's intended to highlight... Um, the situation of migrants in our community here and just imagining the idea of if those who you know some of whom drive our buses some of whom um, treat our parents in hospital um, some of whom are our work colleagues mm -hmm. some of whom are our kindly neighbors etc etc if they weren't around and just thinking and, and, and calling upon people to reflect mm. how important our neighbors friends colleagues and this workforce are actually to us and how much more respect perhaps we should be showing um, to those people um, at this time. Um, I, I've no doubt that uh, 
in relation to that, there will no doubt be people who will take activity, I guess, focus now because of what's happened in, in recent days over in the States on, for example, the Muslim ban too. And I fully expect that um, there will be a continuation of this focus, including through demonstrable protests. And indeed, Amnesty is already looking at how we do that, both in the United States, mm. also in this country, and indeed elsewhere. Yeah, no, sorry, my, so my, obvious, my, my, my anger was placed on the Daily Mail and the uh, Daily Express when they um, hammered the judges um, back in the, I think, autumn. I can't remember now. My the memories. so-called enemies of the people. Yeah. So are we now living... See, the, the thing is, I don't want to be a sensationist. I, I want to be as balanced as I possibly can. Uh, and I really, I really genuinely mean that. You know, I, I think it is very easy at the moment to go, Brexit means the end of civilization as we know it, and all that kind of crap. And we're going to fall into this massive black hole, and we're all going to be incredibly poorer for it. But my underlying underlying fact is, yeah, financially we, we might be up shit creek, but hum, humanitarianly, if that's a word, um, my fear is wherever the Daily Mail choose to point their finger and it's normally immigration is that just going to get worse and it is going to get worse but what's Amnesty's job in post-Brexit Britain that's a massive question and I know my preamble was massive but and I know that's hard to answer but for me anyway refugees I'm associated with the Liberal Democrats Tim Farron obviously you know he spent quite a lot of time and a lot of passion trying to engage with, with people about this refugee crisis. But how can we engage with, with a public that are now so vehemently turned against the idea of refugees? Well, I, I think we have to be careful about talking about the public as a single homogenous oh, group. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. I meant and, sort of like, you know, the, yeah. say the percentage within... The percentage that maybe had their minds turned by... Um, by the refugee crisis, by Im by immigration and whatever that means. Yeah, I mean, I still think that it's quite delicate. It's quite delicate in terms of thinking about that. Certainly, in response to refugee protection, um, public responses in terms of polling, anyway, does tend to vary quite significantly depending upon what is the major news of the day, mm. and so. It's far from clear to me that there is a, a significantly stronger anti-refugee protection feeling amongst the general public in this country. Clearly, there is a sizable number of people who do have very anti-refugee views. There's a sizable number of people who are very, very pro. Um, but on the whole, I think it's still the case that the UK is in favour of respecting the right to provide asylum, there is just a great deal of difference of opinion and misunderstanding, frankly, as to how that fits in relation to immigration generally and who, are, who is a refugee and who isn't. There is certainly, by contrast to what I've just said, I think anyway, a much stronger move in the sort of anti immigration, anti-migrant direction more generally, which is extremely harmful for all migrants, including refugees, because for obvious reasons, people don't walk around with signs on their heads identifying for the rest of us just who is the type of migrant that we're supposed to be supportive of and who in the current environment um, we might be more hostile towards. Not that, of course, I'm suggesting we should be hostile <laughs> to anybody. Yeah, yeah. but. What I am suggesting is that hostility affects everybody. Yeah. Um, Amnesty's role at this moment in time, I think, um, is to recognise that what has happened over the last 12 months in that direction has not come out of nowhere. Mm. You know, this, this is a question of both public attitude, um, certainly our, our media's attitude or certain parts of our media's attitude, and indeed policy from governments, successive governments, over long periods of time, which have tended to accentuate fears and anxieties around immigration. Now, 
that's all exploded in quite horrific ways in the last 12 months. We certainly that the spike that we saw last year in um, xenophobia and hate crime, something that's also been seen in the in the in the United States for largely similar reasons. Um, that at the same time provides, I suppose, an opportunity for a call for action by us. It certainly puts demands on an organization like us. The challenge is to be able to both respond immediately in terms of standing up for people's rights now, but also to have a long-term goal of how you start to row back what has, as I say, has built up over a number of years. Mm. You're not going to change either public attitudes or political responses overnight. Mm. You're going to have to have a means of educating both members of the public frankly some of our politicians too um, to change the way in which we respond to migrants of all description to these shores so are you hopeful 2020 in 2250 when we're long gone do you think do you think it will all be okay or do you think this is just part and parcel of the human race um well i'm not i'm certainly not of the view that it'll all be okay i mean amnesty exists because unfortunately human rights abuse seem to be ingrained in the capacities of humankind and i'm not expecting that that is going to disappear mm. but am i optimistic about the capacity to make serious progress and change fundamentally our attitudes towards migrants yes i am provided we're in it for the long haul mm. and we're prepared to gather around us as many friends as possible on that course recognizing we're going to fall out from time to time along the way but if we have a shared vision about understanding that all people deserve respect mm. and that includes migrants amongst us then yes there's no reason we can't achieve that mm. huge things were achieved in relation for example um, to gay rights over an extended period of time because people set out on a long-term journey with a long-term vision We've got to do something similar. And how how can um, so I, I was quite I was I was moved by a, a, a podcast called um, uh, An Irishman Abroad, and and uh, the, uh, the presenter interviewed someone who was um, specifically affected by uh, he was a refugee and was specifically affected by civil war. Um, how how can people? get involved with amnesty what are you looking from people from that are say like myself or uh they're just starting out and on the on an 18 year old for example who's just taken part in a march or is just not even taken part in a march where where's the entry level uh, i don't know for want of a better expression to get involved with amnesty well there are various levels in which you can get involved with with amnesty um so from mere supporter and and, and, and membership um, so some people um, provide a, an annual subscription. They take part in in some of the petitions that are that are put out, some of the protests that um, we take part in. Um, but we also have um, hundreds of groups right across the country. Um, we have groups in schools, in universities. We have groups in local communities. Um, so if you want to get more involved, you know, find your local amnesty group. The key thing, really, is to take part in the discussion. Learn and take part then in a, in a wider discussion amongst your friends, colleagues, family. You know, Amnesty is a movement in this country of somewhere around 600,000 people, hmm. several millions worldwide. But nonetheless, we're still a minority group in a, you know, in a, in a country here of 65 million. What we need is more people who are inspired, whether as members or whether just paying attention to the information that we provide, the research that we do, to discuss these views, to stand up for human rights in whatever way possible. And frankly, you know, there are lots of organisations through which you can do that. If, if amnesty isn't your thing, you know, there are plenty of other organisations who you can join and take part in. Mm -hmm some of whom in some ways more directly active, some of whom getting out to places like Calais to deliver aid, you know, not something that Amnesty does, we're not an aid organisation. Others of whom supporting refugees in local communities, mm. um, others of whom doing similar type work, yeah. campaigning work to Amnesty. 
So there are plenty of options, um, and they're not exclusive. You, you can do more than one, so don't, don't, yeah. feel, don't feel sort of turned off from joining Amnesty. Yeah. But yeah, basically get involved, write, read, speak. Yeah. Get educated. Yeah, well, you know, we, we all need to constantly be doing that, myself included. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did want to. This is a danger of turning into a, uh, a, an interview for a job. But I, if I ask this question, but what what is it? Um, because Amnesty is so revered around the world. I mean, particularly, um, I've had a, a lot of interest with the organisation for a long, long time. But what's it like working for Amnesty? Um, in, in many ways, it's absolutely fantastic in that. You know, you're surrounded by you know, highly committed people, highly knowledgeable people about um, human rights situations, both at home but across the world. You're supported by a movement that is truly international. So people who you know, w work and live um, not only in this country, but in many of the countries on which you know, we campaign about, and indeed many of the countries from which refugees come to this country. So there's a great sense of energy. There's also an enormous amount of knowledge. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's thoroughly exhausting and sometimes bewildering, you know, the amount of things that as a primary human rights organization for the world mm. that we seek to try to take responsibility for are way beyond our means. And so trying to prioritize what you work on at any one time, mm. trying to get as much as you can out of the capacity that you have at any one time it's you know it's hugely challenging as well but you know i guess you know if you if you if you want a job that stirs you and and gets you out of bed in the morning well then you couldn't really find a better one yeah no no it, it does sound fantastic i mean my 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 background um when I first started uh, interested in uh, human rights, was I, I read a book called *The Heart Must Break* by James Maudsley, and he was um, he he deliberately um, protested uh, pro-democracy in um, uh, in Burma, Myanmar, and uh, he he deliberately got himself arrested and was sent to um, prison. I forget the name of the prison now. World famous, absolutely horrendous in Rangoon, and it's the most intense story i mean the torture he went through and what have you but i and then i was on youtube the other day and saw via amnesty and saw um a, a, a documentary that you you guys have made on is it syad prison mm -hmm. um so, so i think it's Syanad. i don't know how to pronounce yeah, it properly but yeah. the, the syrian uh, prison where yeah um it seems that anything around 13,000 people have been executed during the course yeah. of this war. So I, I know I don't want to, I know I'm, my interview technique is not the best at the moment. You know, it's, I'm a bit of a chatty chatterbox. But the, the level of, of attention that is gathering on that at the moment is, is quite interesting. The Times ran that on the front cover yesterday. Um, what, on, what the hell do we do? in that situation that civil war is effectively over in inverted commas you've got donald trump who loves putin and will do anything to prop up the assad regime what i mean thirteen thousand people possibly more killed murdered what what how do we fight that how do we what is the effective way of fighting that um well or at least bringing people to justice well, it is hugely important that we all stand for the principle of bringing people to justice. You know, there, there has been far too much throughout the time of Amnesty's existence of repressive regimes and individuals being allowed to get away with um, the torture, the murder, the executions, the genocide that they've been responsible for. Um, Amnesty takes a clear view that people who are um, uh, who, who perpetrate such horrendous international crimes must be brought to justice. Now, what can you and I and everyone do in respect of that? Well, actually, it's the it's the ordinary things. It's the it's the standing in protests. It's the writing a letter. It's the saying to our political representatives and political representatives all over the world that when the opportunity comes, they must take it to prosecute people. Mm. 
Mm. You know, they mustn't balk at that because we must send a message to those who come next that you're not going to get away with crimes like this. You will be punished. You will finally be caught up with mm. and you will see justice. Not, and not just for that, but also for the sake of the victims. You know, the many families who've lost their lives. Mm. No, it won't bring their loved ones back, but it certainly is an important statement for them to bring the person who's perpetrated these crimes against their family members um, to justice. And the other thing I suppose that is worth saying, although perhaps not so much in relation to the specific context which you've mentioned, writing letters to regimes that, that hold prisoners of conscience, which is you know, a long-standing, the original, if you like, amnesty action, which we still um, continue, um, does also um, not just to the regimes, actually, but to the prisoners themselves, is an enormous, and we hear it again and again from those people released from prison, is an enormous source of comfort and source of solidarity, inspiration for people suffering enormously. And how do people, how can people do that? How can people just, is it on the, on the website? Is it on the Amnesty website? Every year we have um, opportunities to send a letter to regimes in respect of people that we have identified as prisoners of conscience um, in prisons right across the world. We also every year have a Right for Rights campaign. Mm -hmm. And within that, there are always opportunities to send a message of solidarity mm -hmm. um, to, a, to a prisoner. You know, I, I had, as people did in this building, the enormous privilege um, only last year of, of, of meeting um, a, a man um, uh, who had been held in the United States for decades, most of which in solitary confinement, mm. um, who was finally released after years of pressure from amongst others, uh, ourselves, a man called Robert Woodfox. Um, and one of the things he talked about, and he's not the only person who's talked about this in person um, to people here and indeed Amnesty members elsewhere, is the enormous source of comfort receiving messages of support mm. from people on the outside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree anymore. I mean, it, that, that must send... Just, it must just send something to the heart, just the will to keep going, because the, the, the human will to survive anyway is so strong but to get um encouragement and no matter how small from a stranger must be mind-blowing really or at least give you a sense to carry on but um i know we did i did ask you earlier but how how long have you been involved in in sort of human rights uh, i mean prior prior to amnesty you, what's your your vague sort of like university sort of and then and upwards did you what did you study at uni well, I'm, I'm if a, you went to university, I, I, I'm a lawyer by by background. Okay, I studied yes. law at university and um, afterwards um, became a barrister. But I got involved in uh, not for profit work. So I, I, I worked at firstly as a volunteer and then at various organisations uh, representing people for free in tribunals in this country. Mm -hmm. um, originally, I used to work on on employment rights. Um, uh, rights to social welfare um, but through that um, I came to be representing asylum seekers with their appeals yeah. um, uh, I, I started at a place called the Refugee Legal Centre in the late 1990s um, dealing with uh, asylum appeals uh, yeah, I took statements from people who've come from just appalling situations mm. from many parts of the world um, and you know, it was just very strongly motivated uh, to want to keep working towards securing um, the rights of people who have been forced to flee. Um, but also through that work, found myself confronted with um, a, a, an often um, <laughs> very strong sense of injustice mm -hmm. about the way in which our home office behaves and the way in which migrants are generally treated, be they refugees or others. Um, and so when I ceased to practice as a lawyer uh, and began working more on training and supporting and advising lawyers as well as doing policy work, providing policy briefings to parliamentarians, 
um, found myself working on a wider range of, of migrant rights issues. Yeah. So, I mean, did that stay with you, sort of like the, the injustices that w- that are inherent within the Home Office? It, it's still very much with me. I mean, you know, I, I when I very first time, not forgetting working on refugees, the very first time I represented someone in a tribunal with a, with a relatively straightforward employment law dispute, um, you just have a great sense of the importance to this individual sitting next to you of securing justice for them. And it, justice may or may not be the winning their particular case, but it certainly means them getting a full and fair hearing mm. of their particular complaint. You know, we have a legal system, we have legal rules, we have that at a domestic and indeed an international level because rights and law is there to protect people, to ensure that justice is done. Well, I feel very passionately about that, you know, in every sense of the word. And there's perhaps no more where uh, no 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 more feeling of passion around that than when you see what turns on those decisions is whether someone is going to receive the protection that they need in a country like this, or face being returned to a place where they may be tortured or executed yeah. or otherwise persecuted. And in and in um, la- last question, I promise. What's the most rewarding case you've had in 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 your years of practice um i i I don't know that there is particularly one um but i'll highlight one (laughs) um i i i was certainly um very moved when um through several hours of interviewing over a number of days Um, a a young woman seeking asylum in this country whom I could tell was not telling me all that she really needed to tell me um, eventually disclosed to me the decades of domestic violence and rape at the hands of her husband um, who happened to be a police officer in her country Mm. um, that she had suffered and indeed her child had suffered too. Um, something that was obviously extremely painful for her, but, but took, a, took an awful lot of courage on her part and took an awful lot of effort on her part, on the interpreter's part and on mine to build sufficient trust and confidence for her to do that. Um, that certainly was a moment that I, I felt very personally moved, um, but you know, there are there are, in fact, many others. Yeah. No, I, I can imagine. I mean, it must be all you can to keep an even keel, I suppose. But that, 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 I should imagine that sort of... Well, you, you you have to when you're in the room, but you can't always outside. No. You just have to know that, you know, while, while you're there with this person who's relying upon you to show them, well, some strength of character, something that they can have confidence in, to know the boundaries of what you can and cannot be for them as well, which is very important, particularly from the, the role of a lawyer. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you, know, you have to take these traumas somewhere and you know, they, they, they can be hard, quite hard to carry. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to get too personal, but I know, I know I can imagine it must just, well, must be heartbreaking. But thank, thanks so much for your time. So thanks for listening. That was a, a great chat. Really enjoyed it. Um, I, I do want to explore more more international um topics i think i think in particular i I do want to kind of tackle the refugee crisis happening around the world how different countries are dealing with it uh good and bad for example you know pauline hansen in australia who is a person that needs uh putting back into prison and possibly gagging um big if there is if there is a gag big enough for that sick mouth uh and uh you know obviously what's happening in 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 the the united states um and and yeah the the interview obviously was slightly it's slightly dated it's about um, about six weeks old but um obviously there's so much relevance still in in the interview but um recently catching up with donald trump and his muslim ban um and how it's being uh, defied quite nicely there um 
it's it's a relief <laughs> put it that way it's a relief thank god um i think what donald trump is giving the american people and certain american people the opportunity uh, he's affording them the opportunity to really show just how amazing some americans are you know the judicial the judicial system rather um and you know also the the campaign the campaigning um the campaigning organizations over in the united states they're, they're kicking into gear now it's really starting you know to to, to get they're still they're starting to get really organized as um as we are i think and um yeah so it's positive there's there are positives to, to be seen now um having done that interview six weeks ago we can now see that yeah that okay donald you you can't you cannot run a country like a business you you, you can't do it oh oh really oh uh, because i think i can no donald you can't uh yeah guys I'm gonna say sayonara. I, I'm. I've getting getting a bit of a cold. I've had a migraine uh, thing today. I had a mi a freakish kind of storm happen to me. I can't even describe what it was. Um, I actually met someone on a walk earlier, and they tried to blame it on the weather. No, no. Okay, it's 22 degrees today. At the end of March. Yeah, that's warm. But it doesn't give you a freaking migraine. And if it does give you a migraine, then you need to move to Scotland, okay? That kind of shit really annoys me, you know? Oh, you, you, you know what it is like? You've got a, you've got a migraine because it's cold. Because it's cold. It, it, sorry, it's not cold because it's warm. It's humid. It'll give you a migraine. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. You know, maybe if you were in, like, you know, if you were in, I don't know, tornado alley or whatever it is in the united states you know where the humidity almost suffocates you oh freaking hell where i just come from in thailand yes fair enough but not not in the uk no god damn you nigel farage shit sorry i just blamed all that on nigel farage can't blame the weather on farage can i can you can you can we investigate that please i'm just going to ask one of my researchers here um Dog one or dog two, I don't know which one. One of them's lying on its back with its genitals hanging out in the air and its tooth hanging out. Um, could you just look look that up? Does Nigel Farage... Can we blame Nigel Farage for the weather? Okay. Hello? No, just still flailing, flailing its genitals at me. Hey, man, you know, do what you want to do. It's a free world, you know. If you want to get them out, you get them out. And if you're a dog... And do it even more, you know. That's what I say. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. Do whatever you need to do. Be kind. Spread the love. See you soon. <laughs>